Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, it's Melissa Rivers and welcome to Group Text. Stay tuned for a new episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. Uh, where do I even start with our guest today? Adam Carolla, someone who I have known, oh my God, how many years do we go back to MTV? I guess, you know, I can't tell with you because you're sort of ubiquitous. So I've always kind of known of you, but I can't tell when I knew you personally. It must have been back in the MTV days. We must have crossed paths in the in the hallways of purgatory <laughs> well it's funny i i was on mtv for a long time but i never actually spent any time at mtv i was always on uh, hollywood center studios but it was kind of the same with comedy central i was on comedy central for a long time now back with crank anchors on comedy central but never actually go to comedy central you know you really try and only hit the uh studios that have good snacks and good craft services. Agreed. And uh, so now I think it's Netflix is where you go now. I got to tell you at Bloomberg, they have excellent, excellent food available for everyone. Just, you know, that. Or, really? Yeah. That or if you ever get the chance once we're out of the pandemic to do the Rachel Ray show. I got to oh, tell yeah. you. Rachel's even, the best. Yeah, they even once packed a box for me to take on the airplane with me. Wow. I could use that airplane box these days because uh, the flights have been uh, slim pickings, man, like a mini bag of of Cheez-Its and uh, some tap water. Like it is really getting it's really getting slim on those flights. I think the word is grim. But we're here to talk about your new book, which might be my favorite title, of all times, I'm not your emotional support animal. The subtitle being navigating all our, our woke, no joke culture. Well, this has been something that I have been talking about for a long time. And I have done, you know, a whole series talking to uh, comedians and authors and I'll use ubiquitous, just like you did, people like you in our, our, our culture. When are we going to be allowed? Why can't we laugh anymore? What happened? What happened? Besides the obvious of like the woke culture, when are we going to be allowed to laugh again? Well, I think the kind of death of comedy, and I don't think there's the death of comedy, but it was severely hobbled by this process. So the process of comedy is sort of the process of, I guess, if you could picture sitting at a at brunch with your friends and having some champagne and just kind of letting it fly, 
you know, whatever you thought was funny and you knew everyone at the table loved you and you loved them and you could bust some balls and have a laugh and roast some people and do that kind of stuff. Well, that's kind of what it used to be. Now, everything before it leaves your mouth, you have to vet it. You have to think who's at this table, who could possibly have a problem with uh, something I might say at this table, who could probably, who could take it away from this table, put it out of context, talk to the person I was making a joke about, hurt that person's feelings. Then could I possibly re be removed from this restaurant if somebody hears something they don't want to hear and then reports it to the mater d? I mean, it's all a metaphor, but what I'm saying is, is the second you stop and start thinking about what you're saying as a comedian, it's over. You can't, yeah, you're fucked. You're fucked. You can't, you can't, there's no art form. I don't care if you're painting or writing a song. The second you're stopping and going, wait a minute, who's going to be offended by this or how could it be twisted and turn or like, what about my livelihood? What if somebody does get hold of this information and how could they use it against me? Once you, have comedians stopping and thinking it's over. And that's one of the things I've talked to a lot of comedians about. Um, you know, obviously I think of my mom who would not have, you know, I don't know if she would have been grandfathered in, so to speak. But when you step back and you, you look at, you know, the, the real roots of modern comedy, meaning my mom, Carlin, Richard Pryor, even Robin Williams to a point, Lenny Bruce, obviously who inspired that whole generation that I just mentioned, they would not be, they would not survive today. They would not have a chance. And it's that stopping of creativity and that self-editing that I find so frustrating and terrifying. You know, I, I don't know if you agree with that, that all these people we herald as the greats and the legends would be canceled. Yeah, there's also kind of an interesting phenomenon, which is, comedians traditionally would push back against the man. And so we expect that from comedians and comedians think that they are pushing back against the man, but they think the man is Donald Trump, but Donald Trump's not the man. The, the man is governor Newsom or Merrick Garcetti or whoever's shutting down LA this week, or the man is a lot of the progressives and the progressive movement. And a lot of that, that's the new man that, that Trump is sort of a wicker man. Like he, he's, he's an easy target. So you can make fun of Trump and people think you're pushing back against the man, but that's not the man anymore. The man is a, is kind of whatever society is doing at the time and whatever the movement is at the time. So Comedians are scared and they're not going to push back again. It's like in the last four years, you've heard 700 million Trump jokes. You don't hear any pushback against black lives matter or any of the movements that are going on, which, which I assert is now the new man and people are scared mm -hmm. shitless to say anything about it. I agree mm -hmm. with you 100%. So do I. So, so do I. part of comedy and especially, you know, with being around the comedians and, and the world I grew up in, 
so much of comedy was also about holding a mirror up to society and saying to everyone, that's what you're saying about the man, but also saying, take a fucking deep breath, everybody. We're all something. My mom used to open her act by walking out on stage and ripping out a list of racial epitaphs like nothing you have ever heard. And you would hear the air suck out of the room. And she would take a beat and say, we're all something. Now let's get started. And you couldn't do that right. anymore. I mean, I just feel, I'm feeling personally creatively trapped. You know, I don't know if you are. Um, you've really taken, in my opinion, a very bold step by saying I'm not, you know, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore, to quote, you know, to use a really overused quote. But how do we hold yeah. up the mirror? How do we, it's not just pushing back against the man, it's pushing back against society as a whole pushing back against who we are and what we've become. How do we, I mean, you, you, you really do encapsulate all the, at least for me, a lot of the frustration and anger I feel. How did that even start for you? Sorry, that was a really long roundabout question. It was. <laughs> Be specific, the- Melissa. Be specific, Sorry. damn it. I, I got it. And uh, a, a, a good network, the movie <laughs> reference somewhere. In the middle of that sandwich. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, there's a couple of places. Um, I've always kind of had a saying, a personal saying, which is, I'm not an asshole. I'm not a bad person. I've never harmed anybody. So now I'm free to say whatever I want. I think there's a, there's a kind of a, for me, there's kind of a thing, which is if you are a bad person or you're homophobic or racist or xenophobic or whatever phobic, you know, we are these days, uh, then you can't really make those jokes, you know, because you kind of mean them, you know, and I've always felt like I was a good person, pay my taxes, take care of my family, love my country, take care of business. Because they buy a car or two buy a car too. And so now I'm free to say whatever I want. Um, so that was sort of my, uh, edict, you know, many, for many, many years. Um, also now as we get into our, our new world order of, uh, what shall we say? And what shan't we say? I'm a comedian and I didn't get into this shit to vet it with other people. I, I, I have no idea what's attractive about it. I get that people are scared. People are basically narcissist cowards. They're worried about themselves and they worry about themselves too much. My feeling is, is if you are a comedian and you are thinking about what people are going to think about what's coming out of your mouth, then you're in the wrong business. So I kind of started thinking about like, well, how's this going to be perceived and how's that going to be perceived? And then I realized, oh, you can't do that. First off, that is a fool's errand because that will just keep going and they'll keep moving the goal line. Things will shift. What something, you know, think about some, something you was okay to say three years ago is now taboo. You know, now you'll get fired or now you'll get attacked on, on Twitter. So given the fact that it's a constant evolving sort of here's what what you, what you could say yesterday you can't say today and what you can say today you won't be able to say tomorrow then why even why even enter that uh that dance circle 
why not just go, fuck it, I'll be over here saying what I want to say. You were one of the real uh, early adopters of podcasting. Yeah. Do you think the fact that you only were accountable to yourself and weren't, you know, accountable to a network allowed you to continue to have this kind of freedom? Because it's always fascinating to me who's given the buy and who isn't, you know, and someone like Chappelle, who I am an enormous fan of, is able to say whatever he wants. And everyone says, awesome, funny and good job. You're you're in that same, as far as I'm concerned, that same conversation. Is it just because you you were there to own your own shit? Literally? Literally. Literally. Um, Not just figuratively. I I would say, (laughs) I would say everyone literally owns their own shit. I set you right up for that um, as it came out of my mouth. I I realized that went straight Uh, over the plate. I, I, um. For me, I kind of always understood that if I was going to say what I wanted to say about every subject that comes up, that it wouldn't work under the umbrella of what would be like kind of a legacy media sort of thing. Like it just, I couldn't comply to, to all those rules and that, and, and that I always instinctively kind of knew that I was going to have to write my own books or make my own documentaries or do my own podcasts or do my own stand-up shows. Or I, I just sort of instinctively knew that it wasn't really going to work in that sort of corporate environment. So I was aware of it. And, uh, almost 12 years ago, I sort of struck out to, to do my own podcast. And you've become a very influential sort of social commentator. I mean, did that catch you? Did it catch you by surprise that your words carried weight? Like, I'm always shocked when someone says, oh, that really meant something to me. I'm like, coming from me? Like, really? You know what I mean? Yeah, I I'm, I feel you. I've, I've never really, I, I don't give it much thought. My, my thing is, is I make my living off of my ideas and I will share my ideas with whomever wants to listen to them. And it'll make sense for some people. And then some people laugh and some people get upset by it and some people be rubbed the wrong way. And that's once it leaves my mouth or once the book goes to print or once the doc is locked off or whatever, whatever the format is, um, once I'm done with that, then, then I'm done. So, and then it shall be received, digested and, uh, made of what it, what it will be, but I can't control it. Once it leaves my brain, once it leaves my mouth, once, once it leaves my computer, you know? So, um, it's a sort of a freedom, which is, I'm going to say what I'm going to say. And, uh, then you guys can sort of take it and do with it what you will. It do, It's hard not to self-edit in these days that I'm working on my new book and we actually have the same uh, publisher. Oh, uh, we do. Yes, we do. You're, you, you were one of their big selling points to me. Um, they kept saying, oh, we're doing Adam's new book. I'm like, cool. Um, but I'm finding myself and my writing partner are very much we, we put it all out there and then we go back and we read it and go, oh, we can't say that. 
Do you have yeah. any self-editing mechanism? I mean, I have, I, I have in my book and it disappoints me in myself because genetically I am not programmed to self-edit. Mm-hmm. I know that's hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we're all bound by this new world order of immediate feedback from everyone on the Twitter mob and social media and things like that. It, it, it's impossible to say that doesn't affect you. You know, it, it, it has an effect. Uh, the question is, is how big an effect, you know, I, I don't think you can mathematically say, I just don't care what anyone says. I don't care how many, you know, negative tweets I get about this or how many bad reviews or how many people call me. X, Y, and Z. Um, everyone is sort of lives in that gravity. For me, it, it just affects me 3%. It's, it's not zero, but it's 3%. Um, when I wrote the book, I would get, I think my copy editor was, I don't know, probably some 30 year old woke guy from Manhattan. And he would write these notes back. They're like, are you sure you want to say this? This is <laughs> nuts. And I disagree with it and blah, blah, blah. And it's funny. The second I heard them go, you should modify this or you should take it down. It made me think, oh, now I, now I can't, now I have to, I can't do that. Well, see, so, Melissa doesn't have that process. We do the same thing. I go through and edit stuff for her. And she was like, it was funny. Right. And I'm like, mm. Mm, or if it's something that's really risky, I'll just say to her, okay, if, if you're going to do this, be clear that you're going to own it. Cause there might be someone that says you went too far. And that to me is the defining moment for writer or performer. It's like, once you put it out there, you got to own it. See, but then she gives me very vague notes to myself and my writing partner, things like you guys are so wrong. <laughs> like, I, to me, that's a hit. I just hit one out of the park. <laughs> but she knows, she knows seriously when I'm saying, okay, it's a green light or let's pause. Let's make sure this is what you want to put out there. Yeah, I, you know, in, in my world, it's just words. It's just print. It's just jokes. It's just thoughts. It's just commentary. How could that possibly be dangerous to anybody? And we're, we're doing way too much. You know, this message is dangerous. I, I don't really think there's a bunch of dangerous messages out there. I don't know anyone who's listening to messages that are dangerous. You know, we have this bizarre new society, which is like, you know, President Trump said to inject Clorox. And then you turn on CNN and they're making a big deal over it. But who's injecting Clorox? Who listened? Sadly, who thought he said that? By the way, sadly, there were a number of people who did in, ingest Clorox. But yeah. how many? I mean, how out of a nation of 330 million people, do we? I didn't hear any stories about deaths from people that drank Clorox. Or no. not because the, the, the president told them to. Well, you can never discount general stupidity um well i know but if, <laughs> if you're gen if you're generally stupid enough to drink clorox or inject clorox you're going to get killed in the next 10 to 15 days doing something stupid on absolutely. your absolutely yeah. absolutely step out in front of a bus god only knows right. i agree right. yeah the, the you know darwinism at its finest 
I didn't know this until I was checking out your website a couple days ago. You did a documentary with Dennis Prager, mm-hmm. who's very conservative. Mm-hmm. How did you and Dennis connect? Dennis is, I'm a big fan of talk radio. I always have been a big fan of talk radio long before I got involved with talk radio. I worked as a carpenter. I worked a lot of manual labor jobs, but I worked in Southern Cal. I worked in the San Fernando Valley as a carpenter. It was basically my, my career before I got into show business. And, uh, I used to, I used to drive around my truck and listen to talk radio. I, I, I listened to talk radio because the, the carpentry was kind of a lonely job and I, I needed this voice or these voices kind of like when you turn the radio on for your dog before you leave the house. So they hear some human voices, you know, and don't, don't chew their tail off. So I kind of did that. And I was always a fan of, uh, Dennis Prager, Dennis Prager hosted a show called religion on the line. I'm an atheist. Uh, he's a very devout Jew, uh, but I liked him and I liked his words of wisdom. And I always thought, Oh, this guy's got a lot of wisdom. And, uh, so I was a fan of his and I would listen to him and his radio program. And, uh, at some point we got connected and we just became very fast friends. Uh, with a very different background. We have a very, our two backgrounds couldn't be further, further point, further apart. So we had nothing in common, but I always say we did, what we had in common was common sense. I love common sense and he has a lot of common sense. And so we, we became sort of friends and I would do his show and he would do my show and so on and so forth. And then somebody thought, we should do a documentary with you two since you're so different, but on the same subject, you're on the same page, which is basically free speech and safe spaces and all this nonsense that's cropping up on college campuses. So that's how that came together. Free speech on co- and safe spaces on college campuses is something actually I, it really irritates me. You know, I, I think a lot about Bill Maher, who I'm a big fan of, and he discussed that we're raising, in a lot of ways, a generation of snowflakes. Mm-hmm. How do I understand that people should not feel like every time they step out of their dorm room that they're going to be abused or maligned or any of those things. But do you think it's taking it all too far? I mean, we also have to teach people how to survive in the real world, or is the real world as we know it gone? I mean, are we just all getting so soft and weak? And sterile. And sterile and fearful. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want to, ra- I, I, I'm not raising a, a snowflake of a kid. I mean, I wasn't raised, I was raised, you know, to duck and cover and get up and go on. Well, you know, I think the scary part is it's moving from college campuses into sort of corporate America. You know, you hear these stories about a book publisher who wants to publish Jordan Peterson's follow-up book and a whole bunch of employees are upset by it. And they, they're going to tell the CEO not to publish, by the way, a book that sold like 12 million copies last time. I mean, it's a goddamn business people. Exactly. It's a business. 
And, and also guys like Jordan Peterson who sell 12 million units of a book, that's what enables a lot of the other books to be financially viable in this business that don't sell that many units or nearly that many units. But you see that the, and I, I can't recall the name of the publisher, but there's one of these stories every week and a half where the, the people, the adults who are really just taking this safe space college campus bullshit and dragging it into Madison Avenue and Wall Street and everything else, they're now trying to dictate what's going on at a, at a publishing house. And, and also the McCarthyism of it, which is, so we just have, you can only publish books that you agree with that that's, that's the new world order. Uh, it's it's a terrifying thing. It's a, a total slide into fascism and, and socialism and the rise of white supremacy. I mean, it's all it's a giant shit show out there. And right. and you you know, I know with the documentary and we talk a lot about free speech. I don't think people really understand, and maybe you can help explain it, the difference between free speech and hate speech. I don't even really know if there is hate speech in terms of First off, it's it's really hard to define hate speech because the problem with hate speech versus free speech is everyone has a different definition of what hate speech is. And I think part of the problem that you're seeing on these college campuses when these people come to speak, you're labeling you're labeling everything that comes out of their mouth hate speech. If if Dennis Prager would show up on a college campus to speak, they would label it hate speech. He's the most friendly, gregarious, religious, you know, kindest guy in the world. You you, and, you would hope he was your neighbor and worth listening to. He's a he's a he's a great uh, voice out there for the last I, absolutely. Couple of years. Uh, you, he should be he should be listened to by these people on this college campus. So you can I think the slippery slope of hate speech is you'll label David Duke hate speech and rightfully so. But then you'll bleed it into anybody who comes on your campus who you may disagree with politically and now we're in some weird no man's land mm -hmm. because if everyone is just deciding on their own, what is hate speech and the definition of it, although they never say it is anyone who disagrees with me, well, then where are we at? Well, exactly. And what's frustrating to me is the Democrats who are supposed to be the big proponents of free speech have now become the death of free speech. And I, I mean, there's definitely an irony in that. And, and I, I always want to bring up one of your tweets, which might be one of my favorite tweets of all times, which is you said more American males now wear bracelets than eat stew. <laughs> How do you even come up with that comparison? But I love the fact that you took on in one tweet stereotypes, fashion, Vegan. I mean, you you ran the board with that one. Well, thank just, you. How do you even think about? I mean, is that just how your brain works, or do you actually kind of craft yeah. something like that? Um, I've been I've been kind of I, I've been kind of 
kicking around this idea about a where are all these guys coming from with their bracelets? Every every guy's <laughs> wearing a bracelet, especially those weird round wooden bead ones. I don't well, better I don't, than the man bun. Better uh, everything's than the better band. than the everything's better than a, a training bra is uh <laughs> less mask less feminine than a than a man bun. So everything's better than the man bun. But I started noticing a lot of guys wearing bracelets and where's this all coming from? And then I started thinking about casserole and stew. And I started thinking, you know. This was a better nation when people made casseroles. I grew up in a, in a, in a nation where casseroles were served. You know what I mean? And if you go to the heartland, they're still making casseroles, you know? And I started thinking about casseroles and stew and how now we're just doing veggie wraps and, you know, we're, we're calling Grubhub and they're bringing over Panera bread. And I thought it, 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 it sounds like a joke. But it's really not. As as more men don the bracelet and and push the stew bowl out in front of them and away from their mouth, we uh, we become a little softer as a nation. I I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I'm a big fan of you know the bracelets because they're cheap and easy gifts for your guy friends. Now. For guys, yeah. Ugh. Oh, please. Do you have any? I ordered. All those little bracelets I ordered, I, there was a bunch that just said vote and hashtag vote. So it all went as a donation to Biden-Harris. So I ordered a bunch of them, gave them to everybody. You know. She's a hoarder. She'll order shit and then we'll stack it in a closet. She's a hoarder. No, I gave oh, those out. She's a hoarder. I, not all. She's a hoarder. I, well, I ordered the wrong sizes. <laughs> I ordered the hoarder. wrong sizes. So now I have all these bracelets that say vote. I'll see, how she, see how she justified that real quick? Well, I did um, order the wrong mm-hmm. sizes. Not my fault. I thought I gave everyone, you know, credit for having big masculine wrists, not little bead-wearing wrists. Look at you. Well, mm. there's, there's going to be another <laughs> election in four years or so. And those things are evergreen, right? I, they don't have the date on them. No, I agree. But thank you for saving that for me. Um, quite welcome. What What is making you laugh? What makes you laugh now? Um, I I'm trying to think. I don't partake or I don't consume that much comedy per se. Um, I'm kind of a guy. I I like to kind of study society. And I like to kind of look at where we were and where we are. Like I'm, I'm the only person still alive who watches TV commercials. Cause I like to know what, where we're at, when we're at it, you know, like I, I, I look at TV commercials as a little snapshot and a sort of where we're at as a I, society. I sample them as well. And if you go back and look at commercials from the fifties or the seventies or the eighties, you'll see right where we were at in those in that time period. So I find myself watching shows like the love boat just to see like what the fuck we were thinking in 1980. And, and so I do a weird kind of sociological study. And, and by the way, that's how you come up with more bracelets than stew. You have to sit around. You can't just sit around and watch comedy specials on Netflix because I look at that is, 
you are entertaining me. I don't, I don't think of that as my job. My job is to look at things and to study things and to make notes and to figure out thoughts to entertain people. So I don't, you know, I'll watch documentaries and, and, and things of that nature, but by and large, I really just sort of study things and I'm a little less, are you watching this series, you know, marvelous Miss Maisel? It's so funny. You should watch it. I always go, I'm sure it is, but that's not how I want to spend my time. I want, I want to, I want to study things. Well, I want to know as you're studying things, are you finding that, you know, the cliche that history is repeating itself? Are we far removed? What are you, what are your findings through these studies of the commercials and other material that you find fascinating? Besides bad fashion and hair on the love boat, which at the time was very, you know, of the moment. No, but I mean, you know, there are nothing ideas. Like, yeah, it's gonna say, nothing like a good shoulder pad. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, your mom probably donned a few of those back oh, in the day. Oh, you have no idea. Oh, I have a very good idea. I, uh, well, I'll give you a for instance, and it's it's not it's not so much Sabrina the it's not so much the history repeating itself. It's a little more like what the fuck were we thinking? Kind of a lot of it, you know. So you take the love boat. Uh, you know that was prime time ABC Family Hour. Blah blah blah. On the love boat, the doctor Adam Bricker. Bernie Capel, the actor, he was the ship's doctor. He was also an incredible lech and a womanizer. And so he would literally be standing <laughs> while women were walking onto the ship across the gangplank. And if a hot blonde walked in, he'd go, oh, let me show you to your cabin. And he'd grab her suitcase and then Gopher, the other latch, would grab the other handle and they start pulling it back and forth going, I'll show her to her cabin. And, and also they'd show him like topside, just drinking a highball, like in the middle of the day in full uniform, by the way, <laughs> making out with chicks on the deck, like literally just mashing with passengers. And you could imagine in through today's lens, if the ship's doctor in uniform was just aggressively hitting on single women who were walking onto the ship, making out with them, drinking on duty, you know, checking out hot chicks that are going by in their bikinis and like walking up to them like, hey, ladies, what, what's going on? Like you realize how surreal that sounds now. Also, it's insane that that TV show was done in like full compliance with princess cruises. So princess cruises had to have like final script approval. They had to see those stories like doc gets laid again, doc bangs, <laughs> the lander sisters, you know, and go, they didn't object. They go, Wait, we don't want to be portrayed this way. This isn't, we can't have the ship's doctor trying to fuck the passengers. <laughs> the lander sisters. Was it Audrey and Judy? One. Audrey and Judy. Yeah, yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was. With the yep. side ponytail. Side ponytail. Yep. That's how you could tell them apart. Audrey <laughs> was on a right side ponytail. <laughs> and believe me, Doc used those things like handlebars to get a blowjob. Look at you. Look at me. <laughs> 
I wish people could see this because I'm dying. Um, what, what? No, we could not get away with any of that now. But that brings us back to, well, one thing I also noticed on your website, by the way, you realize that you're still advertising the Adam Carolla Experience Cruise. Has that yet been canceled? It's like that for December sounds about 10th. Right. <laughs> you might, yeah, you might want to take that off the website. Keep yeah, it up for shits and giggles. Like, Leave it there. That sounds like Let's us. see who's paying yeah. attention. Leave it there. <laughs> Clearly me. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we get back to, uh, you know, as I would say, like to take a deep breath. My mom always used to say making someone laugh was like giving them a mini vacation. And God knows we could use one. What do you see? What do you what do you what do you think we're going to need to do? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, I know what I think and nobody cares about my opinion. I want to know is your I want to know is your new book going to help us? That's what I want to know. Thank you. I'm your emotional support animal navigating our all woke no joke uh society or something like that. Um I can tell um, you the exact Wait, hold on. The exact title is I'm your emotional support animal navigating all our woke no joke culture mm-hmm our all woke no joke culture yeah um well i'll tell you what has to happen because it's super effective no one really wants to do it but it's it's really effective people have to stop apologizing once you stop apologizing it all goes away because the people that claim they care they don't really care they want you to apologize they're just narcissists they want that power you know, the ultimate power over someone is to get them to apologize to you. I mean, you think about every relationship where the woman is saying to the guy, just apologize, just apologize. It's like the guy's not even, he's not, he, he's not even sorry. It's just the, the plan is, is you should succumb to this. Like you, you should acquiesce. And it, that's what they want. They want the apology. By the way, half the shit they're offended by, they're not offended by. And by the way, most of the people who are offended aren't even the in the group that you made the joke about. They're just offended on behalf of somebody else. They don't really give a shit about the apology. Stop apologizing. When you stop apologizing, they stop. They leave you alone. Nobody asked, no one ever asked me to apologize because I don't apologize. No one asked Dave Chappelle to apologize or whomever. If you think about the people who don't apologize, they get left alone. It's the people who apologize. It's never good enough. It's it's like shakedown money from the mob. You know, they go, oh, give us a hundred bucks. So uh, your window doesn't break or your dry cleaner. You give them the hundred bucks. You think they're good with that? You don't think they're coming back? You don't think they know now know who gives them the money. Mm-hmm. They're going to come back. That's mm-hmm. how it works. And they just keep coming back. So people need to start to, you know, start telling these people to fuck off. I it's like that bumper sticker. Beginning. I like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Just don't I apologize. <laughs> I, I, I guarantee if everyone stopped apologizing for three months, this stuff would all go away. Adam, I am such a fan, and today you reminded me again why. I cannot thank you enough for doing the show. I'm so excited to have have you as a guest, and even more excited that I'm going to get to also use you as, well, my emotional support animal, but as as my uh, part of my comedians in the State of Comedy series, because you have driven home a point that I have not been able to articulate. Oh, thank you. Part of my job. 
There you go. 